Chapter Twenty Nine of Varney the Vampire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Varney the Vampire, Volume One, by Thomas Prescott Prest. Chapter Twenty Nine. A peep through an iron grating. The lonely prisoner in his dungeon. The mystery. Without forestalling the interest of our story, or recording a fact in its wrong place, we now call our reader's attention to a circumstance which may, at all events, afford some food for conjecture. Some distance from the hall, which from time immemorial had been the home and property of the Bannerworth family, was an ancient ruin known by the name of Monk's Hall. It was conjectured that this ruin was the remains of some one of those half-monastic, half-military buildings which, during the Middle Ages, were so common in almost every commanding situation in every county of England. At a period of history when the Church arrogated to itself an amount of political power which the intelligence of the spirit of the age now denies to it, and when its members were quite ready to assert, at any time, the truth of their doctrines by the strong arm of power, such buildings as the one, the old grey ruins of which were situated near Bannerworth Hall, were erected ostensibly for religious purposes, but really as a stronghold for defence, as well as for aggression, this monk's hall, as it was called, partook quite as much of the character of a fortress as of an ecclesiastical building. The ruins covered a considerable extent of ground, but the only part which seemed successfully to have resisted the encroaches of time, at least to a considerable extent, was a long hall in which the jolly monks no doubt feasted and caroused. Adjoining to this hall were the walls of other parts of the building, and at several places there were small, low, mysterious-looking doors that led heaven knows where into some intricacies and labyrinths beneath the building, which no one had, within the memory of man, been content to run the risk of losing himself in. It was related that among these subterranean passages and arches there were pitfalls and pools of water, and whether such a statement was true or not, it certainly acted as a considerable damper upon the vigour of curiosity. This ruin was so well known in the neighbourhood, and had become from earliest childhood so familiar to the inhabitants of Bannerworth Hall, that one would as soon expect an old inhabitant of Ludgate Hill to make some remark about St. Paul's, as any of them to allude to the ruins of Monk's Hall. They never now thought of going near to it, for in infancy they had sported among its ruins, and it had become one of those familiar objects which, almost from that very familiarity, cease to hold a place in the memories of those who know it so well. It is, however, to this ruin we would now conduct our readers, precisely in the form of a connected portion of our narrative. It is evening, the evening of that first day of heart loneliness to poor Flora Bannerworth. The lingering rays of the setting sun are gilding the old ruins with a wondrous beauty. The edges of the decayed stones seem now to be tipped with gold, and, as the rich golden refulgence of light gleams upon the painted glass which still adorns a large window of the hall, a flood of many-coloured beautiful light was cast within, making the old flagstones, with which the interior was paved, look more like some rich tapestry, laid down to do honour to a monarch. So picturesque and so beautiful an aspect did the ancient ruin wear, that to one with a soul to appreciate the romantic and the beautiful, it would have amply repaid the fatigue of a long journey now to see it. And as the sun sank to rest, the gorgeous colours that it cast upon the mouldering wall deepened from an appearance of burnished gold to a crimson hue, 
and from that again the color changed to a shifting purple, mingled with the shadows of the evening, and so gradually fading away into absolute darkness. The place is as silent as the tomb, a silence far more solemn than could have existed had there been no remains of a human habitation, because even these time-worn walls were suggestive of what had once been, and the rapt stillness which now pervaded them brought with them a melancholy feeling for the past. There was not even the low hum of insect life to break the stillness of these ancient ruins. And now the last rays of the sun are gradually fading away. In a short time all will be darkness. A low, gentle wind is getting up, and beginning slightly to stir the tall blades of grass that have shot up between some of the old stones. The silence is broken, awfully broken, by a sudden cry of despair, such a cry as might come from some imprisoned spirit, doomed to waste an age of horror in a tomb. And yet it was scarcely to be called a scream, and not all a groan. It might have come from some one on the moment of some dreadful sacrifice, when the judgment had not sufficient time to call courage to its aid, but involuntarily had induced that sound which might not be repeated. A few startled birds flew from odd holes and corners about the ruins to seek some other place of rest. The owl hooted from a corner of what had once been a belfry, and a dreamy-looking bat flew out from a cranny and stuck itself headlong against a projection. Then all was still again. Silence resumed its reign, and if there had been a mortal ear to drink in that sudden sound, the mind might well have doubted if fancy had not more to do with the matter than reality. From out a portion of the ruins that was enveloped in the deepest gloom, there now glides a figure. It is of gigantic height, and it moves along with a slow and measured tread. An ample mantle envelops the form, which might well have been taken for the spirit of one of the monks who, centuries since, had made that place their home. It walked the whole length of the ample hall we have alluded to, and then, at the window from which had streamed the long flood of many-colored light, it paused. For more than ten minutes this mysterious-looking figure there stood. At length there passed something on the outside of the window that looked like the shadow of a human form. Then the tall, mysterious, apparition-looking man turned and sought a side entrance to the hall. There he paused, and in about a minute he was joined by another who must have been he who had so recently passed the stained-glass window on the outer side. There was a friendly salutation between these two beings, and they walked to the centre of the hall, where they remained for some time in animated conversation. From the gestures they used, it was evident that the subject of their discourse was one of deep and absorbing interest to both. It was one, too, upon which, after a time, they seemed a little to differ, and more than once they each assumed attitudes of mutual defiance. This continued until the sun had so completely sunk that twilight was beginning sensibly to wane, and then gradually the two men appeared to have come to a better understanding, and whatever might be the subject of their discourse, there was some positive result evidently arrived at now. They spoke in lower tones. They used less animated gestures than before, and after a time they both walked slowly down the hall towards the dark spot from whence the first tall figure had so mysteriously emerged. There is a dungeon, damp and full of the most unwholesome exhalations, deep under the ground, it seems, and, in its excavations, it would appear as if some small land-springs had been liberated, for the earthen floor was one continued extent of moisture. From the roof, too, came perpetually the dripping of water, which fell with sullen, startling splashes in the pool below. 
At one end, near to the roof, so near that to reach it, without the most efficient means from the inside, was a matter of positive impossibility, is a small iron grating, and not much larger than might be entirely obscured by any human face, that might be close to it from the outside of the dungeon. That dreadful abode is tenanted. In one corner, on a heap of straw, which appears freshly to have been cast into the place, lies a hopeless prisoner. It is no great stretch of fancy to suppose that it is from his lips came the sound of terror and of woe that had disturbed the repose of that lonely spot. The prisoner is lying on his back, a rude bandage round his head, on which were numerous spots of blood, would seem to indicate that he had suffered personal injury in some recent struggle. His eyes were open. They were fixed despairingly, perhaps unconsciously, upon that small grating which looked into the upper world. That grating slants upwards, and looks to the west, so that any one confined in that dreary dungeon might be tantalized, on a sweet summer's day, by seeing the sweet blue sky, and occasionally the white clouds flitting by in that freedom which he cannot hope for. The carol of a bird, too, might reach him here. Alas, sad remembrance of life and joy and liberty! But now all is deepening gloom. The prisoner sees nothing, hears nothing. The sky is not quite dark. That small grating looks like a strange light patch in the dungeon wall. Hark! Some footstep sounds upon his ear. The creaking of a door follows. A gleam of light shines into the dungeon, and the tall, mysterious-looking figure in the cloak stands before the occupant of that wretched place. Then comes in the other man, and he carries in his hand writing materials. He stoops to the stone couch on which the prisoner lies, and offers him a pen, as he raises him partially from the miserable, damp pallet. But there is no speculation in the eyes of that oppressed man. In vain the pen is repeatedly placed in his grip, and a document of some length, written on parchment, is spread out before him to sign. In vain is he held up now by both of the men, who have thus mysteriously sought him in his dungeon. He has not the power to do as they would wish him. The pen falls from his nerveless grasp, and, with a deep sigh, when they cease to hold him up, he falls heavily back upon the stone couch. Then the two men looked at each other for about a minute silently, after which he who was the shorter of the two raised one hand, and in a voice of such concentrated hatred and passion as was horrible to hear, he said, "'Damn!' The reply of the other was a laugh, and then he took the light from the floor, and motioned the one who seemed so little able to control his feelings of bitterness and disappointment to leave the place with him. With a haste and vehemence, then, which showed how much angered he was, the shorter man of the two now rolled up the parchment, and placed it in a breast-pocket of his coat. He cast a withering look of intense hatred on the form of the nearly unconscious prisoner, and then prepared to follow the other. But when they reached the door of the dungeon, the taller man of the two paused, and appeared for a moment or two to be in deep thought, after which he handed the lamp he carried to his companion, and approached the pallet of the prisoner. He took from his pocket a small bottle, and raising the head of the feeble and wounded man, he poured some portion of the contents into his mouth, and watched him swallow it. The other looked on in silence, and then they both slowly left the dreary dungeon. The wind rose, and the night had deepened to the utmost darkness. The blackness of a night, unilluminated by the moon, which would not now rise for some hours, was upon the ancient ruins. All was calm and still, and no one would have supposed that aught human was within those ancient, dreary-looking walls. Time will show who it was who lay in that unwholesome dungeon, 
as well as who were they who visited him so mysteriously, and retired again with feelings of such evident disappointment, with the document, it seemed, of such importance, at least to one of them, to get that unconscious man to sign. End of chapter 29